1: a lamp for my feet a light on my path
0: psalm 119 verse 105 new international version
1: all scripture is breathed out by god and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of god may be complete equipped for every good work.
0: 2nd Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 New International Version
1: Forever, O oh Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me. That I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your
0: commandment
1: is exceedingly broad.
0: Psalm 119, verses 89 through 96, New Living Translation. Hi, I'm Victoria Kay, and today on Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books, we are starting a new discussion series about the Bible. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., would you like to say hi to everyone?
2: Hi, everyone.
0: Okay, so much for long introductions. I guess you're saving time for the good stuff. Well, last week, we used one of our humor pieces to do a slightly longer introduction of Crystal Sea Books than R.D. did of himself this morning but there are probably some listeners who didn't get a chance to hear that piece. So we'd like to start today by listening to another humor segment Crystal C has produced just to tell you a little bit more about what we do.
2: Hi, I'm R.D. Fierro from Crystal C Books.
0: Awesome.
2: And I'm not famous. And if you've never heard of me, you probably didn't need me to tell you that uh, because, uh, well, I'm not famous. And neither is my colleague, associate, good friend, pal, chum, beach bud, road dog, and all round good companion here, uh, oh, Jerry. There you go, Carrie. Jerry. He's not famous either, but ever since we did our first Crystal Sea Books audio promo, that's what we in the business call audio promotion, more people, like nine or so, oh, nine people, really? Success. Have started to recognize us. So today, we want to build on that success. Now, the first nine already know that even though Carrie and me aren't famous, Jerry, hello. we work for someone who is famous. Universally famous. Literally. I mean, he's such a big deal that when he speaks, the lights turn on.
1: Let there be light.
2: Instantly. Everywhere. Literally. He's so well known that seas have been known to part, and storms calm down when he shows up. Literally. So what could we do for someone like that? Well, actually nothing. Literally. Dude, enough with the literally. But that's not the point. We're here because even though he turned on the lights, the lights have been on for so long that a lot of people don't think much now about how they got that way. That's why we started Crystal Sea Books, to encourage people to think about him and his light and his book, where he talks about turning on the lights everywhere, literally, Uh, uh, right. Now, if that seems odd to you, it's not half as odd as it seems to us. I mean, we're not famous, but we spend all of our time promoting someone who is famous. Is that nuts or what? I like me some pistachios. But that's what we do. We promote our boss. So how do we do it? Well, we write stories and books. And record them. Right, and record them. So our books become audio books.
1: Duh, they knew that.
2: And we make music and prayers.
1: Oh, everybody needs prayers.
2: And we try to enjoy ourselves while we're doing it. Our boss calls it living life more abundantly. My
1: belly sure is getting abundant.
2: So even though we have a serious purpose, promoting our boss and all, Barry and I (sighs) and all our other colleagues, associates, road dogs, and friends Fitz, nice to meet you. Marcus here.
0: Victoria here.
2: Want you to live life more abundantly too. Does abundant life include animal crackers? I like animal crackers. And that's what our stories and books and music can help you and your buds and chums do. Live life abundantly, with or without animal crackers. They'll tell you about our boss and his book and his light, and how he brought light in the beginning, and how he still brings it to people today. So go to CrystalSeaBooks.com and turn on the light for yourselves. We have all kinds of things there links to our stories, exciting scenes from audiobooks, epic poems, songs a bo-delicious blog that is written by another of our team members, Darlene, crystalseabooks.com is a veritable cornucopia of abundance. Wait, we don't sell corn. So take it from Mary Jerry, Mary Jerry? G- and that? the whole Crystal Sea gang. Visit crystalseabooks.com where we're, we're not, famous, not famous, but our boss is.
0: Obviously. You can tell from this segment and last week's the Crystal Sea is focused on the Bible. We would like everyone to discover or rediscover the amazing treasure that is found in God's Word. But today, there are a lot of people who may never have read the Bible all the way through, or perhaps not at all. And a lot of people probably consider the Bible just to be another ancient book with little or no relevance today. So why don't we start with a basic question, R.D. Is the Bible still relevant in the 21st century? Is it important? And if so, why?
2: Is the Bible still relevant today? Well, I think that's a very good question. Yes, of course, I think that the Bible is still relevant today for a variety of reasons. But before I describe the specific reasons, let's go back. Let's go way back. There was a point in eternity when the only thing that existed was God. God in His essence, and His person, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This was before the creation of anything, including angels. Now, the first line of the Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And commentators are not universally agreed on whether the reference to heavens includes the physical heavens or whether that also includes the creation of heavenly beings, namely the angels. Using what John Gerstner used to call my sanctified imagination, I tend to think that the angels were in existence before that line, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I take that heavens to mean the physical heavens of the current cosmos, if you will. All of the physical creation was established at that time. So that leads us with the opportunity to do a little, again, sanctified speculation. If you'll remember, in the Garden of Eden, Satan had already fallen. He appeared as the serpent and was able to tempt Adam and Eve. So, in the Garden of Eden, Satan was already in existence. That means the angelic order was already in existence. And that means some portion of the angelic order had already rebelled or fallen. Satan, as the leader of the fallen angels, arrogates unto himself the right, or the opportunity, if you will, to tempt. Man. At this point in creation, the six days, we were on the sixth day of creation, they had already passed. God had created man in his own image. So now there were two sentient orders of beings in the universe. There were the angels, a portion of whom had already fallen, and now there was man. Man possessed rational facilities, possessed emotion, possessed reason, possessed some of the attributes of God, as did the angels. But they are entirely different categories of beings. Angels are spiritual. Man is physical. The angels had the direct apprehension of God immediately from their creation. Man was created by God, but then God breathed into man the breath of life. So you have two categories of beings who are thinking, intelligent beings, but they're quite different. So man at this point has not fallen. Man is in a state of innocence in the garden of creation. So how would that look to a group of fallen angels who had rebelled, lost their estate, as the Bible says, been kicked out of heaven, and now have a very great certainty that they're going to suffer for all of eternity. And now God has lavished his affections on a brand new order of sentient being whom they were able to observe God had placed his image on them. I doubt if you're a fallen angel, you're real happy at this situation. You are the least favorite among a group of three, and you're not happy. So Satan takes the opportunity to see what he can do to disrupt this very pleasant little order that God has established. He goes into the Garden of Eden, poses as the serpent, tempts Eve, Eve eats of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Adam eats, now man is fallen. So now God is confronted with, if you will, three categories of his sentient creations. He's got the unfallen angels who remain loyal to him. He's got the fallen angels who rebelled without being tempted. Remember that there's no temptation placed in the face of the angels of Satan and his minions who rebelled. There was no temptation placed in their way. Man had temptation placed in his way. There was an external evil influence that was put upon him to induce him to fall. God is now confronted with a decision that he has to make. How will he treat his newest fallen creation, man? Well, here is something that only God could do. Because God is not only a God of justice and holiness and righteousness, which means that God must punish rebellion. He must punish sin. If God did not punish sin and rebellion, that would be an affront to his justice. But God is also a God of love and mercy, and kindness, and tenderness. So, with the fall of man, he now has the opportunity to demonstrate to the unfallen angels the completeness of the attributes that he possesses, and so what he inaugurates is what we'll talk about in future episodes, the covenant of grace, which is the restoration or redemption of one of his fallen creations. And so this is a part of the grand biblical saga of creation, fall, and redemption that I call Two Rebellions, One Redemption. God had two groups of rebels on his hands. One, the spiritual, non-physical beings who had a direct apprehension of him in a fully formed state from their beginning, and the other, who was a physical creation who entered into a physical garden, but before he rebelled, was subjected to an outside evil influence. So God began the redemption of the second group, but never of the first. So when we talk about the Bible, that's where we learn all of the basis for what became the unfolding of history. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. After six days, man was created, and after man, Eve was created. When Adam and Eve rebelled, We're still in the third chapter of the first book of the Bible. All of this has taken place in just a little over two chapters. But we still have 65 books and 60-some-odd chapters and hundreds of pages. We still have a lot of Bible history to go. The entirety of the rest of the Bible is all about the story of redemption. So when we talk about whether the Bible is still relevant today, Is still important today. One of the places I like to start is the fact that we still have an unfolding story in real history that isn't complete. So the story is still unfolding, it's not complete, and we're living in that story even today. So the Bible is still important and relevant because we're in that story. And doesn't it make sense that if you're living in the story, you'd want to know the whole story? How else will we know the whole story if we don't read the Bible? We would have no idea how we got to where we are. Now, of course, there are reasons beyond merely this, if you will, the beginning of the grand story that we should read the Bible. The Bible is relevant today because God still exists today. God's still on the throne today. God is eternal. And because God is eternal, his word is eternal. But I recognize that we're living in a more pragmatic age.
0: Our opening says that the Word of God is inspired, inerrant, and infallible. What does that really mean?
2: Let's start with inerrancy because that's the easiest thing to understand. Human beings can do things that are inerrant. I mean, I will sometimes go to the store with my wife having given me a shopping list and get everything on the shopping list. So I can sometimes do some things inerrantly, if you will. I can even remember to get the orange juice that's got the calcium in it. And I can remember to get the gluten-free chocolate chip cookie mix rather than the kind that has gluten because our friend can't eat gluten. So sometimes I can do things inerrantly, and other people can do things inerrantly. Students can sometimes give answers to tests.
0: Okay, and what about infallibility?
2: Now, infallibility is a much higher standard. Because even though I may occasionally do things inerrantly, all you have to do is listen to the humor segments with Jerry and I, and you find out that I am definitely not infallible. Jerry would tell you that uh, if no one else would, and I'm sure he could give you a very lengthy description about the forms of fallibility that I have occasionally displayed. So I'm never going to be infallible, and in fact, no human being is going to be infallible. So, when we claim that the Bible is infallible, we are truly making an amazing statement. Let's be honest, as believers and as Christians, we are making some claims that unless we can substantiate them, defy all of human wisdom and experience. We're claiming that a book that was composed by dozens of authors over a period of hundreds of years We're claiming that that resulting product of all those authors writing all those words over all that time, we're claiming that the writings which they produced were incapable of error. That's an amazing claim, and it's an astounding claim, and it's one that obviously is going to be subject to discussion and to objection, and that's fine. We have to be prepared to give intelligent reasons that we believe in the infallibility of Scripture.
0: And what about inspiration? Well, let's understand
2: that inspiration is inextricably tied to inerrancy and infallibility. Because if the human authors of the Bible were not inspired by God himself, then there is no way that the writings which they produced could have been infallible or inerrant. As I've said before, human beings may occasionally do a few things inerrantly, but by and large, we don't live our lives without error. We commit errors every day. At least I know I do, and Jerry would be glad to reaffirm that for you. We're never infallible. No human beings are. We are all fallible. So let's go back and think about our opening story for a moment, the story that was the result, of, if you will, of my sanctified imagination. Why would God go to the trouble of inspiring this group of authors to produce an inerrant and infallible work? Remember the big story. God has a plan of redemption. He's producing a covenant of grace. God wants His people who are being redeemed to understand the method, process, and story of their redemption. So God is, in effect, through the Bible, through the inspiration of the human authors, telling us the story He wants us to hear. Just as in human families, Fathers and grandfathers and sometimes great-grandfathers sit around and tell the stories from their past when they grew up on the farm or when they went off to war or when their grandmothers made clothes by hand or when they had to crank a car by using a crank. In human families, we tell stories so that our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids can have an awareness and understanding of how they came to be where they are and the context in which they will live their lives. And if we don't have that context, in human families, we list, we miss something, we lose out on the appreciation. And frankly, it makes the human relationships within the family harder sometimes to establish, to maintain, and to comprehend. So when God inspired the human authors to record the story, what God was doing through them was to give us our own context in the grandest story and saga of all time. Now, that verse from 2 Timothy says that the inspiration of God, that that's expressed by the combination of two Greek words. The word that's used is theonustos. That word is a combination of two other Greek words, theogod and nuo, which means to breathe. So when the Bible uses the Greek word theonustos, it means literally that the scripture was God-breathed or more properly, God breathed out. Now, there's a lot of ideas that are associated with that. One of the ideas is that breath is necessary for life. If you go back to the second chapter of Genesis, it says that God breathed life into Adam. If you go to the 20th chapter of John, it says that after his resurrection, Jesus breathed on his disciple. So the idea that something was breathed or breathed out by God, and of course Jesus is God, is the idea that God has communicated something to the recipient. In the first case, God communicated life. He also communicated certain of his attributes, his ethical standards, his moral clarity, his reason, his ability to think and to engage and to communicate. With respect to the chapter in John, Jesus was at that point, in effect, giving an indication of the coming of the Holy Spirit. He was, through his breathing on his disciples, indicating that at some point in the not-too-distant future, the Holy Spirit would also invest them with spiritual life and with additional knowledge. So when the Bible says that the Scripture is inspired, it's not talking about a physical action, because God's Spirit, therefore God doesn't actually breathe, but it's talking about God communicating to the recipients in a very profound and intimate way. Now, some people have wondered, what exactly did God communicate when he inspired the biblical writers? So there are a lot of ideas about how God actually communicated his word to the various Bible writers. Remember that the Bible was written by dozens of writers over a period of 1,500 years. And so I believe in what's called verbal plenary inspiration. And that's a long phrase, but it really is not that hard to understand. Verbal means words. In other words, when God communicated with his writers, he actually communicated the words that he wanted them to use. Now, God was not treating his writers as if they were stenographers. He was not dictating to them. What God was doing was using their own individual attributes, skills, and abilities, as well as their life experiences, knowledge, and education. He inspired them to use all that to produce the words that he wanted. Plenary just means full. So the inspiration that God provided was down to the Word, and many Bible commentators will say not just down to the Word, but down to actual marks, because when the Bible was originally recorded in Hebrew, Hebrew originally did not use vowels. It used what were called vowel points. So sometimes to indicate the meaning of a word, there were not just symbols, but these little tiny marks that were the vowel points for that word. So in order for that word to have been produced, God had to have inspired the writer to use not only the basic letters, but also those little marks. So the inspiration was of a very detailed sort, but it wasn't the stenographic type of dictation. It was inspiring the writer to write using the words that God was inspiring within them. And full means that all of the words in the Bible were inspired by God. In other words, it was not a partial inspiration, It was a full inspiration. All of the words in the original documents were inspired by God. Again, God was not instructing them by using them, in effect, as a sophisticated dictation machine, but God was inspiring within them the words that he specifically wanted them to write. There's a great website that's produced by Michael J. Kruger. He's a professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary. He also happens to be the president of the Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Dr. Kruger has a number of excellent articles on his website about verbal plenary inspiration and what that means. So listeners who are interested in just delving more deeply into this subject, Dr. Kruger's website is a great resource for them to use.
0: So they might like to consult michaeljkruger.com for more information. Dr. Michael Kruger is Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay, sounds to me like a good time for a prayer. Today's prayer comes from another one of Crystal Sea's offerings, the book Purposeful Prayers, and is dedicated to the Messiah who was promised in Genesis 3.15. A prayer of adoration of the Son of God. Blessed and holy God, we glorify your name for you are a Father who sees the need before it arises and knows our steps before we take them. Moreover, your word has revealed to us that you are not alone in your glory. The great and vast throne room of heaven is ruled by your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, who instructs, illuminates, and edifies the people you gave to your Son. In the secret counsel that is shared by the Holy Godhead alone, you made provision for man's weakness and fall before the first stone was placed in Earth's foundation. In acts that we still cannot fully fathom, you sovereignly elected to send your only begotten Son to come and take up human form and flesh. In the fullness of time, your son descended from the glory that is rightfully his to walk the way of suffering. Your son fulfilled the original covenant that Adam had broken, and after living a perfectly sinless life, took our place on the cross. In dying for us, he accepted the full measure of wrath due us and made possible our redemption. The grave could not hold him, for he had done no wrong, And when he arose, it signified that he was victorious, righteous, and fully able to save his people. What a wondrous love is ours from the Father and Son. We kneel in praise, prayer, and gratitude for Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time. And we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're We're not famous, but but our our boss is. is.